Without a, a formal trial, they have, in effect, a meeting. They discuss the evidence before them. The wardroom votes on it, and they vote that the right thing to do is execute the, the three crew members that they have under irons. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. For our episode today, we'll be discussing the foundation of the United States Naval Academy, how it came about, some of the key figures who played a role in it. And for our audience members, you'll realize that we've been covering a lot of Naval Academy history in the past six months. The reason for that is because this is the 175th anniversary of the establishment of the United States Naval Academy, originally called the Naval School. So with us today, we have Commander Steve Phillips, United States Navy Reserve, retired. Steve served as a surface warfare officer and special operations officer and explosive ordnance disposal technician. He holds a BS in political science from the United States Naval Academy, a master's of science in strategic intelligence from National Intelligence University, where he also served as an instructor from 2005 to 2010. And he's pursuing a PhD in war studies through the Lawton Naval History Unit at King's College, London. And Steve, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. You're part of a line of Naval Academy graduates. Correct. Uh, My father was the class of 1967. I was the class of 92. My brother was 96. And then my son was class of 2017. So it's family tradition. How does that play? Because you have have a lot of graduates or midshipmen who are sons and now daughters of graduates. Is there a different experience that you have either as the son of a graduate when you were a midshipman or as a father as you were just a few years ago? Yeah, I think I have had a unique experience in in both perspectives. Uh, When I came here as a midshipman, I already had a really good understanding of what I was getting myself into because I had heard all of my father's sea stories. I knew all of his peers. I knew and heard stories of service. Added to that, I grew up in the area, so I was very familiar with the Naval Academy. Similarly, I enjoyed mentoring my son and his classmates, and I've sponsored mids over the years too, so I was sponsoring from the class of 2008. And so that gave me an interesting perspective, and I have enjoyed hearing the differences between those who were here in the 60s and those that are in here into the current decade, um, but then also what things have remained the same. Let's talk about your writing, because you write a lot. Indeed. Uh, tell us about your books. Uh, my first novel was uh, entitled Proximity, a novel of the Navy's elite bomb squad. And I wrote that because I found that when I was serving as an explosive ordnance disposal technician um, in the late 90s, most people had no idea what that role was, what that mission was. Uh, And so I decided I would write a book to explain to the public uh, what life was like as a Navy EOD technician. My primary goal was that EOD techs could give it to their family members and say, hey, if you read this book, um, you'll understand what it is that I do. Uh, And then my second book, uh, in a similar idea, I wanted to write about the Naval Academy and the experience of a midshipman at the Academy. Uh, So my second book, The Recipient's Son, is about a midshipman, fictitious member of my class, whose father uh, perished in the Vietnam War and was awarded the Medal of Honor. And the story is his coming-of-age story of coming to the United States Naval Academy, 
learning to identify with the father that he did not grow up with through a shared experience as a midshipman um, and then life in the Navy. You know, we, you know, I'm, I've written a couple novels as well, and that's how we yeah. first met, actually. Your second novel and my first were published right. at the same time. I remember doing the interview with the Capitol at that time that's together. That's right. That was a fun moment. That was. And it's uh, how do you balance what you knew as a midshipman factually with uh, writing it in a fiction format? I wanted to be as accurate as possible. So one of the things that I would do is come to the yard, and I actually walked around with a cell phone camera and took photos and videos because I thought even as a graduate, if you don't set the scene exactly right, it won't ring true. But then the other piece is, it is a, a piece of fiction. And um, I had to decide at what points do I take a little bit of license in order to express a story. So it was an interesting balance to strike. In general, I tried to lead lean toward the, the side of accuracy. Tell us about your doctorate. Uh, I'm working on a PhD at King's College London. Uh, the dissertation is a historical case study of Operation Earnest Will, which was the U.S. Navy's intervention in the tanker war, which was part of the Iran-Iraq war. What happened was uh, both nations were attacking each other's oil industry in order to erode uh, the ability to fight the war. And then Iran started attacking neutral shipping uh, to include Kuwaiti and Saudi Arabian tankers. So Kuwait asked the United States if they could reflag tankers as American and receive U.S. protection. We agreed to that, and it basically turned into a two-year conflict with Iran at sea that included kinetic action. So I'm unpacking it soup to nuts looking at it mostly at the operational and tactical levels of war. There's a couple of folks that have studied it at the strategic level. I'm really down on the deck plates. And we're going to be talking about that in a future episode because I remember when, it was probably about a year or two ago, you and I walked around the first deck of the museum, and one of our exhibits, we have the one of the Exocet missiles that hit the Stark, the one right. that did not detonate. right. Uh, we have a model of the Samuel B. Roberts that belonged to the CO of the Samuel B. Roberts, Captain Wren, who spoke here uh, several years ago. So what was your impression with the Exocet missile? We had the warhead casing. We have it, I should say. The warhead casing and part of the the uh, missile, a portion of the missile itself, the aerospatial that uh, produced the that Exocet missile. Um, I think it's either aerospatial or it might be tails, one of the two. Okay. Those are the two big French aerospace um, producers. Yeah, it was fascinating for me to see it in person for the first time because I had heard the stories over the years. You know, I was in high school in 1987 when it occurred, and I knew that I wanted to serve in the Navy, so I was paying attention to what was happening during Ernest Will at that time. Later in my career, I met the EOD tech who went in and did the post-blast analysis of it. And then since that time, I've also spoken to crew members from the Stark. And so to go and actually see the missile there, that was the, it was the first one that hit. It went through the port side all the way to the starboard side, and then, as you said, didn't detonate, but spread rocket fuel throughout the spaces that led to the really hot fire that those guys had to fight for hours and hours. And so it's an interesting piece of history because there it is right there. I mean, that's, that's the warhead. So you're a historian, you're a novelist. Let's go back to the historian's hat for a second. And the piece that you are writing, it should be in Shipmate this month, I think. Correct. Uh, and Shipmate, for our listeners, is the a magazine of the United States Naval Academy Alumni Association. Steve, tell us how you got involved with 
that uh, with the museum. Indeed. Well, so the museum welcomed me as uh, one of the inaugural members of the Naval Academy Museum History Fellowship, and we discussed looking into the history of the foundation of the Academy because it's the 175th anniversary. I started by saying I wanted to delve into the Summers Affair. Many people who study Naval Academy history and, and Navy history are familiar with this story. The USS Summers had a mutiny on board that was incited by a midshipman by the name of Philip Spencer. He was, there was an investigation. There wasn't really a trial. He basically was found guilty without trial hung from the yard arm, and then when Summers returned, there was an investigation, there was an inquiry and a court-martial, and it became sort of the notorious court case of the day. Midshipman Philip Spencer was the son of the Secretary of War, uh, John Spencer, and so as a result of that, that you know, sort of elevated it in the, in the public's eye. In the end, the commanding officer, Alexander Slidell McKenzie, was exonerated. But then it led to uh, Midshipman Spencer's story. He became sort of the cause célèbre of the, the, those who wanted to establish a formal naval school to train midshipmen. As I delved into it, I ended up finding the story of another midshipman, past midshipman Samuel Marcy. Uh, he was an instructor at a naval school in Philadelphia, at the Philadelphia Naval Asylum, and I discovered that he was pivotal in the foundation of the Naval Academy to include its location here in Annapolis. And what I discovered was he was also the son of a New York politician who was the Secretary of War. And so when, when I- When did he serve as Secretary of War? Um, Just prior to- It was the Spencer? Polk administration. Okay. And so it was after- It was um, after. Yeah, so he was the Secretary of War, right, the Polk administration, so at, at the same time that Bancroft was the Secretary of the Navy. So Summer's Mutiny happens in what year? Uh, 1842. Okay, the establishment of the Academy is 1845, 45. so people can see how- this is transpiring. Let's go back to the term mutiny. Does a mutiny actually occur on the summers? No. Um, what happens is Midshipman Spencer is preparing a mutiny. He makes a list of those that he thinks will join him. Uh, what's important to note is the summers was a training ship. So it had a, a design for a crew of 90, but it had a crew of 120 on board, most that were apprentices or young midshipmen who were there for the purpose to train at sea. Its mission was to sail to West Africa and deliver dispatches to the Vandalia. Uh, Spencer was one of, which was common at the time, a midshipman that was sent to sea because basically he was a bad actor. He misbehaved, and the idea was let's send him to sea so that he can uh, learn discipline. Uh, he had previously served on uh, two other ships, the USS John Adams and the USS uh, Potomac, and he himself admitted that uh, when he was interrogated by Alexander Slidell McKenzie that he had attempted or th planned to conduct mutinies on board those ships as he, well. He'd been kicked out of one or two colleges as well. Absolutely. Yeah, he'd been, he'd been basically, he, he kept getting shuffled around, and I think it was because his father was a politician that he sort of was able to just get moved to the next command or the next school. As and that were. provides a problem for Alexander Slidell McKenzie because he doesn't want him. Exactly. He, he actually refuses him. Right. And it's difficult because... Mackenzie is part of a very famous family in naval history. That's right. He's part of the Perry family because his sister married Matthew Perry. So Matthew Perry and Oliver Hazard Perry are brothers. He is their brother-in-law. And indeed, when he sails on the summers, two of the uh, midshipmen in his wardroom are Matthew Perry's sons. Matthew Perry's son of the same name and then Oliver Hazard Perry 
uh, not the son of Oliver Hazard Perry, but the Matthew Perry son of by the same name. And they're also related to the to the Rogers family, which has uh, more than a century long of service in the United States Navy. So this is the premier aristocratic family in the Navy, if if you can say that. Absolutely, yeah. Let's go back to the court of inquiry and court martial. What's the difference between a court of inquiry and a court martial? So in the court of inquiry, that's basically an investigation. When he returned to port. Uh, Perry took all of his logs and sort of wrote a cover letter and had, I'm sorry, Slido McKenzie did that and had Matthew Perry take it to uh, Washington, D.C. and said, hey, this is basically what went down. So there's an investigation, and that's the inquiry. After the inquiry, he then requests a court-martial, and that was common at that time, and it was sort of a step beyond in order to, you know, fully exonerate oneself. Which is probably why you see so many captains court-martialed in the early republic, you know, from... 18, roughly 1801 to 1840, you see a lot of ca full captains being court-martialed. Uh, the summer of, I think it was 1825, there were at least, I think there were three. Uh, Stuart David Porter, who was, who was uh, court-martialed for the Fuxardo, Fuxardo affair, excuse me for the pronunciation, and uh, I think another captain. So it was not unusual. Right. Yeah, they, they, they liked to have that so that they could, in effect, fully clear their name. So what's interesting is during the court-martial, because it's the, the, you know, the, the sort of famous case of the day, it's attended by um, some other well-known folks. Uh, James Fenmore Cooper, who most know as a novelist, had served in the Navy as a midshipman and had written an early history of the United States Navy. And in that piece, he had challenged Oliver Hazard Perry's service. So Slido McKenzie, who also was a historian and who'd written books about John Paul Jones and about Oliver Hazard Perry. He writes a review that uh, James Fenmore Cooper feels like has damaged his reputation and his ability to, to sell the book. And so he attends the trial and then writes, you know, a scathing review of Alexander Slido McKenzie. He sort of criticizes him. And Fenimore Cooper is, is a significant figure in the Navy during the 1830s and the decade preceding the mutiny because it's not only the the first true naval history that is written in the, in the country, but he's also writing a lot of articles in the Naval uh, Magazine, which is the, the formal magazine of the Naval Lyceum that's based up in New York. We discussed it briefly on the yeah. show before. So he knows all of these officers. He served as a midshipman before the War of 1812, so he grew up with them. He is now a major literary figure in the United States, and he's commenting on a lot of issues around the United States. But there's another literary figure who's also in that courtroom, Richard Henry Dana. Richard Han yeah. Henry Dana. And he had uh, served at sea as a merchant seaman, and uh, he wrote the book two years before the mast. Which and one, one of the, of the best sellers of the time. Indeed. And he wanted to sort of change the, the corporal punishment at sea. He was, thought all of the lashing, etc., was abhorrent. And Alexander Slidell McKenzie was challenged because he was sort of known for using the lash often and especially on the cruise of the summers it's one of the things that was looked at was was he able to maintain control of the crew dana becomes a maritime lawyer and he's sort of on a mission to end you know the use of physical punishment at sea so he also attends and also writes you know a scathing report uh, his view of what has happened but of course uh, Alexander Slido McKenzie is exonerated from both the inquiry and the, and the, and the court-martial. And so as a result, the whole story pivots now to the founding of the Naval Academy. 
The next person that I would describe in the story is William Chauvenet. So William Chauvenet is a graduate of Yale University, and after graduating, he serves at sea as an instructor aboard USS Mississippi. Uh, following that, he's uh, assigned to the, the Naval School at the Philadelphia Asylum. What's he teaching? Um, he's teaching initially primary mathematics, but he becomes interested in the entire curriculum. It's important to know that the naval schools at this time, in effect, were study halls. So what was happening was midshipmen would serve at sea, they would learn the trade for a few years, and then uh, they would come ashore and prepare for an examination. And some of them, both in between their times at sea and right before the examination, would go to one of these naval schools, and it was a period of time for them to be tutored, for them to study, and perhaps, in effect, to cram for that examination. So Chauvenet is at the school in Philadelphia, and he decides, you know, the, really the way to do this is to have a formal curriculum. And it, the initial one he designs is about two years for the midshipmen to go through. And then following that, go to sea for a year, uh, learn the trade, and then return, and then prepare for the examination. Now, keep in mind, the, the midshipmen are very, still very young at this point. Yeah, Even the ones some, going to the school. Some of them are coming in at the age of 14 years old. Um, so he decides that uh, after de designing this curriculum, that he puts it forth to a couple of the different secretaries of the Navy. Uh, the first one, Second Ave Henshaw, likes the idea and decides that um, we should move forward with the school. But then his uh, successor decides that we're not going to have the school, and he shuts down the idea and continues with the current model. So after the summer's affair, Chauvenet sees an opportunity, and he contacts through a friend of his, uh, Secretary Bancroft. And George Bancroft likes the idea of a formal naval school. Uh, because Chauvenet, he had a background. He did. What, what did he do before he became Secretary of the Navy? What was his background? Yeah, so he was in uh, Harvard educated, and then he went to Germany and studied in university there. When he returned to the United States, he founded a secondary school called the Red Hill School. And part of the idea for that school was he also had a big moral component. He was into, like, let's set young men on a strong moral path. So now, appointed as Secretary of the Navy, when he's approached by Chauvenet, who says, I have an idea for a school that will be a formal curriculum that will train midshipmen to, at sea and also prepare them morally, Bancroft thinks it's a great idea. Another thing that Chauvenet brings forth is the idea that because it is such a challenge to try to get a school established by Congress, let's build a school, run it for one of two, two years on the Navy's budget, and then ask Congress for um, formal backing. And Bancroft likes that idea and decides to adopt that idea as well. Is there anybody arguing against a naval school? How exactly does Bancroft propose this? Yeah, so there had been folks that were arguing against a naval school. It had been uh, put forth in Congress several times over the years. And in fact, the most recent one was in 1842. And the detractors say a school is going to be expensive. Uh, the best way to train midshipmen is at sea. Uh, the school is basically going to become a place where the Secretary of Navy can garner some power by uh, giving appointments to midshipmen who are the sons of naval officers or politicians and the like. And so the idea is that this is, this is just not going to work. Which is sort of ironic <clears throat> because when you start to look at the officers in the Navy in 18, between, say, 1815 and 1840, there are a number of them who are either married to the daughters of senior officers or to members of Congress and senators. So there is already that networking that, that's evolving within the Navy. Right. 
Um, so Bancroft decides that he likes the idea and he wants to have a study conducted so that he can determine how best to proceed. Well, there was another instructor at the Philadelphia Asylum, uh, and that's past midshipman Samuel Marcy. What's a past midshipman? So a past midshipman is someone who has uh, done their time at sea, taken the examination, passed the examination, and now is waiting to, uh, for a spot to open up so that they can be commissioned. Well, uh, Samuel Marcy was a really sharp guy, and so he was asked to join the Naval School in Philadelphia, and so he was part of the faculty there and was instructing other midshipmen as they prepare for their exam. So for Bancroft, he's uh, no fool. He realizes that Samuel Marcy is the son of the Secretary of War, William Marcy, and so he asks him to go to West Point and study the curriculum there and write him a report. Samuel Marcy uh, does that, and included in his report, he says there are many things that are happening at West Point that a naval school should adopt. Uh, for example, one of the things is he says, in order to ensure that midshipmen do get some time at sea, every summer, the midshipmen at the naval school should go to sea on a summer cruise in the same manner that the cadets at West Point at that time would go into a summer encampment. What's really interesting is that uh, Samuel Marcy also had influence on his father turning over Fort Severn to the Secretary of the Navy uh, as the location of the Naval Academy. Uh, Fort Severn had been uh, suggested previously as a location for a naval school. There were several other locations that were suggested, such as the, where Aberdeen Proving Ground is today. There was another island in the Chesapeake Bay that was suggested. But um, Samuel Marcy, uh, I, I think it might be Tanager Island, but I can't Tanger, be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it can't be for sure. Uh, Samuel Marcy ends up basically convincing his father to sign over Fort Severn to the Navy. And so that's how this location becomes the Naval Academy. Stephen, researching this this issue specifically with Marcy, is there any indication if, if he ever, I don't, was Mahan's father teaching at the at West Point at this time? I think Mahan's father was teaching at this time. Yeah. I wonder if he ever met with him to get some ideas. I would have to find that out. That I'd have would to be, pull the string. All right. Yeah. In looking at the archives, what I was able to find uh, that I thought was most fascinating, because in doing my research, part of what I wanted to do is go and delve into original research, is there are uh, some notes that were written by... Chauvenet to a gentleman by the name of Ford who was trying to write a history of the Naval Academy. That history is never written, but the notes are here at Nimitz Library. And so that was fascinating to look at Chauvenet's discussion of the plans for the initial academy. When are those notes from? Are those from the mid-19th century? Yes. Never been published? Uh, never been published. I mean, they're in the Nimitz Library, yeah. but the, the intent was for Ford to use them to write a book. How extensive were they? If memory serves, it's about five or ten pages around there. Yeah, that's the one of the interesting things about special collections and what they have on the history of the Naval Academy is a number of professors, especially in the 1800s, left their papers there. Or you see the, the original letters from E.B. Potter, who was a longtime uh, naval history professor here at the Naval Academy, who is corresponding with most of the senior flag officers from World War II Upon which, from which he can base his future book on, uh, his own books on, on uh, naval history. Uh, there seem to be two lines of thought on why the academy was established, especially growing out of the mutiny. The so-called, I will say the so-called mutiny because there was never an actual mutiny. Correct. It was always assumed. And we should point out that Alexander Slidell McKenzie did go beyond the pale 
because for court martial in that era under the regulation of the Navy, you had to, number one, uh, a captain could not call a court, mar a court of inquiry or court martial. You had to have, if you did, you had to have three officers of equal or superior rank. I think that may still be the case, I'm not sure. So he didn't do anything. He simply, he simply went right to execution of who was perceived to be the chief mutineer and his, his two henchmen, if you will. Correct. And the reason was, and this comes out in the Board of Inquiry and the Court Martial, is it surmised that uh, Mackenzie and the wardroom started to panic. The reason is, is the summer's quarterdeck is not easily separated from the rest of the ship. The main deck is one long deck. They don't have the style where the quarterdeck is above. And so they have uh, Spencer, Cromwell, and Smalls, two of the folks that they felt like were starting to move with him on this. There were others on his list, but those they felt like were sort of the most guilty. They're in irons, and then what happens is a lot of the... Sorry, what is it, for our audience, what, is it, what does it mean to be in irons? They're basically handcuffed and, and held under security on the no quarterdeck. Correct. On a small, on a small, but that is a, the fastest ship in the fleet at that point. It has no brig. There's no intent. They had Marines aboard, I assume. Um, I don't think they did have Marines in on board. Case, yeah. yeah, I'd have to go back and look at my research yeah. for that. But I do know that what's happening is then the... Uh, the rest of the crew basically starts to make some aggressive moves towards the quarterdeck, and there's a couple of times that the wardroom thinks they're going to try to rescue their fellow crew members and take the ship. And so they start to panic, and they go through a period of time, a couple of days, where everyone in the wardroom is carrying a pistol. They're not allowing anybody to come back to the quarterdeck. They're trying to sort of reinstill discipline. They decide basically this is what we need to do. And so without a, a formal trial, they have, in effect, a meeting they discuss the evidence before them, the wardroom votes on it, and they vote that the right thing to do is execute the, the three crew members that they have um, uh, under irons. And now what happens then is Mackenzie spends a long time talking with Spencer, and Spencer does, as I said before, agree and admit to his guilt to include, admit that he had intended to do this twice before. And he wanted to use the ship as a pirate vessel. He wanted it to be a pirate vessel. and um, Which would have been very difficult because if that's the fastest ship in the fleet at that point, and you don't have that many ships in the United States Navy in 1842, they kind of run roughshod wherever they want to go. Exactly. Sort of like Khan in Star Trek II. If he could have gone anywhere he wanted to. Sorry. And you can imagine this being attractive to a lot of young men, all these apprentices and young midshipmen on board, the idea of being pirates and sailing around the Caribbean and on the west coast of Africa, that, that he might be able to convince some of them to that lifestyle. What's interesting is there's a, a, a back and forth between Mackenzie and Spencer, where Spencer says, you know, now that you've decided to execute me he said I'm, I'm so upset because it's going to be so embarrassing for my mother he doesn't think of his father he thinks of his mother hmm. he says it's going to be so embarrassing for my mother and Mackenzie says to him well it wouldn't it be embarrassing to her if you became a pirate like if you ended up killing us and throwing us over the side and he said that would have been equally embarrassing I want to get back to uh, what I was trying to get to earlier and I, I kind of got off base sorry for Steve there are two streams of thought on this establishment of the Naval Academy because there's the Navy perspective, which says uh, in the 1830s, all of these junior officers, they're, they're going over to England. In fact, Alexander Slidell McKenzie, Matthew Perry, they both go to England and investigate these new steam warships, try to figure out how we can do this as well. We're starting to build them in the early 1840s. But it's the, it's the midshipmen and lieutenants of the Navy in the 1830s who are saying, 
we need a formal school because we have the STEAM technology. We don't have this education because everybody's getting something different on whatever ship they're on, and it depends on the schoolmaster. And some of them, weren't, quite frankly, weren't very good right? or didn't have the specialty in mathematics like Chauvinet did. And then there seems to be this other school of thought, the members of Congress and the, the publicity that was generated out of the Summers mutiny that said, oh my gosh, this is, they're completely unethical, immoral midshipmen running you know, all over the Navy, and we need to do something. We need to have some sort of leadership and ethics courses, if you will, or some place where we can teach them morality. So you have this, this convergence of these two thoughts, but it's really the public outrage that drives Congress, that drives Bancroft. Is Absolutely. that a fair statement? Absolutely. And so, as I said before, Bancroft was really into the idea of we're going to evaluate these men morally. And from the very first day, midshipmen are basically separated because of bad behavior. Um, going back to my initial notes or the, the uh, original source material, another piece I looked at was written by one of the first faculty members, uh, Lockwood, and he writes about midshipmen that are found out on Cornhill Street drinking and everything and that they're brought back and how they're going to deal with them. And they didn't always kick them out outright, but there was definitely a component of evaluating the midshipmen morally. Here at the academy? Correct. Sorry, here at the Naval School? Correct. That's, yeah, that, we actually had a, a young ensign just graduated, uh, Julia Speranza, who was on the, the podcast a few weeks ago, who talked about early naval discipline in the first decade of the academy. So if people want to go back to listen to that from a few episodes back. So. There was another piece that was important in forming this naval school, too. You're, you're absolutely right. There was the engineering piece. There was the moral piece. But another thing came out, and it was the idea that uh, young naval officers also have to be diplomats. And so there was an idea of we need to also have courses in philosophy and language. And believe it or not, it was thought important to teach them dancing because the idea is you may be at a court someplace and you have to be able to participate if they have a ball or something of that nature. So I've often wondered if that's the source of ballroom dancing at the Naval Academy still to How this day. How long did they teach dancing? for? Was that, was that a formal course here at the Academy? It was. As a matter of fact, there was a name at one point. It was called the Boys Dancing School or something like that. There was a funny name for it. West Point must not have had had that because they didn't go to foreign courts. They didn't it go was overseas. Only the Navy. Right. Yeah. Tell us about the first years of the academy. Yeah. So in the first couple of years, it's still called the Naval School. You have a group of midshipmen that have been serving at sea, who, in their minds, are going to go to one of these naval schools and cram for the exam. That now are coming here to Annapolis, and that group of midshipmen were called the Oldsters. But then you also have midshipmen that are coming, that are you know, young lads, 13, 14, 15 years old, that have wanted to join the service. They're coming here to start the curriculum without time at sea. They were called the youngsters. Is that where the term comes from for the third class midshipmen? I just have found this in my recent studies, and so I have surmised that without an actual you know, direct link to it in my, in my research. But that's what I surmised must be the source so, of that term. So for our audience members who haven't been to the academy or are graduates, people will be familiar with... Uh, college, where you have freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior. And so, Steve, you've got the freshmen who are called what? Plebes. And then you've got the third class? Youngsters. Second class? Second class for segundos sometimes. Yeah. They, yeah. Didn't, they don't get anything special. I feel bad for them. And then for the seniors? Firsties. Okay. It's kind of interesting to see the development of some of these names. Tell us about the, some of the first students. So what happens is those first students, because they're that mix, 
Um, and they were still in a situation where they were not necessarily, there wasn't like a, a graduation of a class would graduate at a particular time. You would study for a period of time and then you would be prepared. And when you were ready, you sort of off you would go. And in fact, there were a couple of times in the early history when the nation would enter war, they would just graduate midshipmen and let them go uh, to serve. Yeah, That happened several times. I mean, that happened in the Mexican-American War, right. Spanish-American War, World War One, World War Two, obviously. Sorry, go, I interrupted. Go ahead. That's right. And so the curriculum also is being revised over those years. And it's in 1850. Remember, the school's founded in 1845. It's five years later in 1850 is when the curriculum is formalized and looks much like it is today with a four-year program. And that's when the school receives the official name of the United States Naval Academy. And, now, so, and so that's why the, the first graduates were in 1846, but they were only here for a year because they had already served some time at sea. Correct. And it's important to note that we did not, we, the Naval Academy, did not have formal degrees, diplomas, sorry, a, a Bachelor of Science degree until the late 1930s. I think it was like 37 after FDR's um, signing a, an act in 1933. But everybody got a commission. They got a diploma, but they didn't have a formal degree from a college like the Academy. Right. What happens to Lieutenant Marcy? Yeah, so what's interesting is Samuel Marcy is among the first faculty members here then at the Naval Academy. So he comes with Chauvenet Lockwood Ward and uh, joins the faculty here at the Academy, and he's here for eight years. He continues to apply for a commission and to go to sea, and he's told year in and year out, you're a really good professor, you're very valuable to us, and they, he, they don't want to let him go. After eight years, he is finally commissioned, and he's, he goes and he serves at sea. And um, he's, he ends up, uh, during the Civil War, as the commanding officer of the USS Vincennes at the head of the passes in the Mississippi River. And their mission is to basically block usage of the river from the Confederates. He's engaged in battle with some blockade runners, actually in one of the ship's small boats, when the gun falls over on him, and he's mortally wounded. His crew members take him back to Vincennes. He dies there six days later. And so for me, I keep coming back to this idea that when I first delved into this research of comparing these two midshipmen that had influence on the founding of the Naval Academy. For very different reasons. For very different reasons. You have Midshipman Spencer, son of a New York politician who was serving as the Secretary of War, who plans a mutiny on board the Summers, who is hung from the yardarm, so he perishes at sea, and he ends up being a catalyst for the foundation of the Naval Academy. I suspect that he's relatively well known to Naval Academy historians and naval historians. I, I believe not as well known is another midshipman, past midshipman Samuel Marcy, son of a New York politician, who also was serving as the Secretary of War, who was an influencer who was pivotal in the development of the initial Naval Academy first in the plans to build it, and then serving as a faculty member. And then he goes to sea as a naval officer, and he perishes in defense of the nation. Um, and I just came away from that, and I said, if we know about Philip Spencer, fair enough. But I think that Lieutenant Samuel Marcy also deserves recognition from the United States Naval Academy in its 175th year. And I think that's a good start with, with this podcast. We, it's interesting because we do have at the museum Philip Spencer's sword. We have that on permanent display. We also have a, a model of the brig uh, Summers 
And I never noticed this before until somebody pointed this out just a couple of months ago. And when you look at the yard arm, there are three small figures oh my gosh. hanging from the yard arm. I was like, geez, can we have that on display? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is a PG-13 Summers Mutiny. I'm not sure. Commander Steve Phillips, United States Navy Reserve, retired author of fiction and nonfiction, soon to be Dr. Phillips. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And Steve, I hope uh, we get to have you back on to talk about your dissertation. It's really important work. Thank you, Claude. And thanks again for giving me the opportunity to be a Naval Academy Museum History Fellow. And now I'm off to my next project. i got to find something else to research and write about. <laughs> so thank you for that opportunity. You're welcome, and thank you for, for joining us for that, because we've been really lucky in our first class. There's you, there's Holly Powers, and Shannon Martin, who's also a Naval Academy graduate. And the work you're all doing in trying to uh, expose some of the Naval Academy history to a wider audience is just fantastic. And for our audience members, we'll have in the show notes a photograph or a link to Philip Spencer's sword and a few other items of note. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great day. And if you enjoy the episode, please do leave feedback on any of the platforms you're listening to this. Have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.